And now for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PNR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Well, hello, content marketers. I'm Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 91 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded on Sunday, August 9th, 2015. It's the end of an era, folks. 16 years of satirical wit and sincerity left this week as Jon Stewart signed off from The Daily Show. And certainly something that's been inspirational for us here at PNR, at least philosophically, Stewart brought humor to the news, shined a light on the hypocrisy of the media, and illuminated some of the most important facets of the issues, well, all the way since 2000 when he started. He's given rise to some of the best voices in comedy and show business, even more broadly today, even including Ed Helms and Olivia Munn and John Oliver and John Hodgman and Lewis Black and Larry Wilmore and Nate Cordry, Steve Carell, and of course Stephen Colbert. Just an amazing legacy of people that came from the team that is The Daily Show. So here at PNR, we can only hope to provide some, even a glimmer of the wit and excellence that is The Daily Show and what it brought. Joe and I are here to bring you the indecision 2015 of content marketing, native advertising, and all this brings. We're here to occasionally go go to camera three and pull aside the curtain to see the real takeaways of marketing. We'll make you want to stop at Arby's just long enough to feel the indigestion and see who's a destroyer of worlds and a cluster effing you-know-what to make the content marketing lead. Joe and I are going to bring you a rant that makes you feel like back in black or a rave that's going to make you feel like great moments in punditry is read by children. And so in every single episode words of Jon Stewart, we've got a great show for you. And to help me kick this one off is my friend, my colleague, my good, good friend, your moment of zen of content marketing, Mr. Joe Polizzi. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Uh, you know, thinking about the – this is the 91st show, obviously, we've done. Right. And then to think about Jon Stewart in 16 years and what, probably 200, maybe 180, 200 shows a year Yeah, he did. Yeah. And how hard it is and challenging for us to do this once a week. Because it's not. Well, we make it seem. Let's be honest. He gets paid a lot more than we do, <laughs> so I think we would make it work. <laughs> well, that's true, but it is. I mean, I mean, Drumers already turned down fifty million dollars to continue. So, so what do you think he's going to do? You know, if I had to guess, I would. I would say he's going to produce and direct and just do stuff behind the scenes. I had this conversation yesterday, actually, with a friend of mine who was like, who is for sure he's going to run for office, and I just, I don't think he's, I don't think he's that dumb, right? I don't. No, think he's, I don't, I don't think, think so. he's going to do anything too. that would actually, you know, keep him from a very, very pleasant life that he so wonderfully deserves. But the one thing about that is, I mean, you've seen it too. His he is a master debater. Yeah, I mean, he is. He would be great on stage. I just had a Beavis and Butt. I just had a Beavis and Butthead moment. I'm sorry. I just. Yeah, I didn't mean. Oh my god, that was totally. Oh, see now. Yeah, he's a master debater, but he works alone. I mean, that's the. Anyways, anyway, we've gotten this just, show off on yeah, the foot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, between your opening and uh, my whatever. Yeah, uh, but he would be. Uh, <laughs> he'd be a great host. He'd be a great host of one of the debate series for sure. I mean, you know, you put him up against most politicians, and he would destroy. I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, he knows the issues of, for sure. But his knowledge of history as well. Yeah, because if you ever if you ever listen to an interview, he just he knows the historical. Uh, all the in, uh, 
the small things, the underlying tones that went with it that I think a lot of people don't go through the extra effort. I mean, he must be an avid reader, I'm assuming, just to know that. Yes, well, I mean, they had this, I don't know if you saw some of the final episodes where he actually actually went through this thing where he never reads the books that, you know, or sees the movies for his guests. And they actually went through this whole thing where they had all these clips of him going, I haven't read the book or I haven't seen the movie. So it's pretty funny. But you know he reads like all sorts of stuff. Uh, you know, we, uh, I might, I could probably let this uh, out of the bag because it's not like that. we tried to get him for content marketing. I know this yeah. year. You knew yes. this. Unfortunately, it did not work out, but it would have been fantastic. Yeah, well, I think, not I mean, for the obvious that, reason, I think he had other things he had on his mind for sure. That, that, that is true. Not, nothing against uh, Mr. John Cleese and Mr. Nick Offerman, both fantastic in their own right. Uh, but one of these days we'll have John Stewart. We'll see. Absolutely. All right. Well, shall we to the news, my friend? Let's do it. All Let's right. It. Well, our top story, um, really interesting article here coming out of Media Post by you know, somebody we've talked about certainly on the show before, someone that I have a, a, a big fanboy, I guess, uh, thing on, which is Tom Goodwin. Um, and he writes, the headline is, Why the Biggest Debate in Advertising is Irrelevant. And it starts out by saying, for the last five years, advertising has hosted an ever louder, more vicious fight TV versus digital spend. We've seen the weekly declarations that TV is dead or the counter arguments. And what he says and then sort of lists out in his article is that this is an argument that shows a distinct lack of imagination about the near future. And he goes through news and music and television and shows and illustrates in his point of view why everything is becoming really unbundled at the end of the day and really why it is about content um, and our ability to distribute it through different mechanisms that is really the important thing and that TV versus digital is a false argument basically because of the internet is distributing everything. What, what did you think about this article? It, it, super interesting article, worth reading for sure. My concern with it, not that it's not a rant by any means because it's not a, nothing against the article, but it's always this fixation on advertising. It always comes back to, oh my gosh, yes, we're going to engage in information this way. Consumers are going to do this, that, and the other. And by the way, I think the article's dead on with the fact that, of course, like when music, you don't buy the album anymore. Right. As my son says, vinyl, it's vinyl. <laughs> Does it, doesn't <laughs> buy the vinyl. vinyl. Doesn't buy the vinyl. <laughs> so you're not buying the vinyl you're buying the you know itunes download or you've vinyl. got the spotify pandora subscription or whatever and and the currency becomes the song as in the currency of digital news becomes the article right i mean i get that whole thing but it seems like this you know as well as this article is written don't you think that it's it's always around because advertising will be better for this don't you get that feeling in this article? Well, it's the, this it's is all the, about advertising. It, well, it's exactly right. I mean, even he starts out by talking about the idea that it's really, you know, the at the source of this TV versus digital spend is really what we're talking about is advertising, right? We're talking about from the marketer's point of view, this is all about how are we spending our money to, you know, get our content in front of audiences. And, you know, he talks about how that that's a, the, a, a false argument. And we've talked about this in varying degree on the show before where we talked about, you know, where, where we asked really, you know, is television an appliance or a service? And, you know, because if I actually 
turn on the thing that hangs on my wall and all I do is watch Netflix and Amazon Prime and am I really watching TV or am I just watching video that happens to be distributed through the internet? I mean, or am I watching it on a TV? And where does a TV stop becoming a TV? I mean, there's all sorts of wonderful sort of philosophical questions that you can have over fun cocktails on this. But to me, it's what, what, what really sort of resonates when you talk about the sort of fixation on the advertising thing is – you know, this you go to a conference these days, any marketing conference you go to, and everything the the slides that are that precede sort of the main point of any speaker, and I I'm guilty of this as anybody, is the metric becomes the TV spend or advertising spend. That's the barometer, right? Anything that is better than that is great, and anything that is worse than that is not great. And that's the because what has happened really is that TV or advertising, banner advertising, et cetera, has sort of become the demarcation line of, of good versus bad. And so we go, hey, our digital spend is better than TV. Great. It must be better than TV and TV is dead. Or you see, you know, we're using content marketing or we're using SEO or we're using email marketing and we're getting, you know – 10% better than banner advertising. We're getting 25% better than banner ads or just regular display ads. That has become, because really it was the only way that marketing sort of expressed itself other than collateral, the sort of barometer for what good was. And so I think what's happening is, is that as we're now, whatever, 15, 16, 20 years into this whole digital thing, it's now becoming a lot blurrier, right? Because now you look at it and you go, okay, well, what does advertising really mean on video? You know, when you think of a Netflix or a Hulu or a broadcast TV or a cable or a YouTube or a, you know, anything like that. Now, all of a sudden, it's very different because the traditional argument doesn't hold water anymore because, quite frankly, it's, it's very hard to define what it is you actually mean. And and so as a marketer taking that away, you sort of look at your content creation standpoint and you say, okay, we have all these different formats we have to create content in, reading, you know, print, video, pictures, et cetera, et cetera. And now how do we promote that or our product across all these different channels? And really what we're talking about is how do we actually reach the audiences in an ever-fragmented way? And that's the real – it's a real complex question mm-hmm. these days that is quite simply – the, to, to, I think I agree with Tom here where he says it's a false argument over TV versus digital. It's really what platform across any type of display is is really the most effective. No, I, I totally agree with that. If you're coming at it from an advertising standpoint, then the, this article is dead on. You're, you're absolutely right. It's fantastic. Yeah, well, well, it's better for advertisers. It's going to be better for consumers. We think – in a utopia world, fantastic. It's wonderful. I think that I would have rather seen him come at this article and said, since distribution has been democratized in such a way, now you can communicate with these audiences in a new and different way. You don't have the man in front of you, whoever the media company or the the, the company with all the money. You can actually build loyalty attention audiences because of this and then on the back end you'll develop your own platform instead of oh well you've got to figure this stuff out because of the fact that you'll have to learn how to advertise more 
or advertising. That's the way that I looked at it right from the beginning. Beginning, It's like, okay, I don't know. Am I looking at it wrong if I say you can either get really, really good at taking this type of thing where uh, content is going to be engaged in certain ways by certain consumers and mobile and all the different distribution platforms that you have. You could then to, to create your own platform of some kind to take advantage of that attention or if you're really bad at doing that, then you can advertise. Well, yeah, uh, yes. No, you're not wrong for coming at it like that. I mean, we, you know, this is you and I talked about this last week, right? We said, you know, we were talking about another topic that was related to this, and and we sort of, you know, kind of half jokingly said, you know, the interesting thing is, is that this is where marketers really kind of have a leg up on the publishing companies because they've been thinking about this for a while, right? So yeah. what we're starting to see now are the publishers, the media companies sort of struggling with this, how do we think about content across all these multi-fragmented channels? And this is something that marketers, quite frankly, with digital and getting their content in front of eyeballs have been thinking about for some time. And so in this really interesting way, we're starting to see these playing fields level even more where as a marketer, you can go, you know what? These media companies, quite frankly, don't have it any more figured out than we do. No. And so really, the, our ability to create a platform, owned media platform, which is what we often talk about here, of course, that competes with any of the publishers that we may have previously rented the media from, you know what? We're not necessarily – you know, in any better or worse shape than they are in terms of figuring out how to aggregate this audience. And so if we can get the talent, we can get the content, we can get the investment, we can get the plan in place, this feels pretty good and opportunistic for those companies that are looking to do this to to actually start something because quite frankly, it's a it's it's a new world for everybody, not just, you know, not just us trying to figure this out. Can I tell a little side story before we go into the next yeah, article? Because sure. I just think it's very relevant. So this is, I don't know, three, four days ago. And my son Joshua and I, we were watching, we were looking for an episode of The Simpsons to watch. So he finds the episode. This is all through, uh, we're using Chromecast. We are on FXX. And we, down, we picked the Simpsons episode we wanted to. It played on the screen, all good stuff. And we're like, it's a, what, it was a 21, 22 minute episode. We're in like, I don't know. It's minute thirteen or something right. like that, and not a not a break at all. And all we're just watching. All of a sudden, it just breaks into an ad. I was offended. Oh, <laughs> I was. I'm like, what? I'm like, what? What? Are you kidding me? Like, we're both looking at each other. Like, is this supposed to be happening? You know, we saw the fifteen second ad or twenty second ad, and it went back. And I'm like, whew, that was close. Like I was, it totally caught me off guard. That's amazing. Just, this is this is not like how I, odd I would, it was I, to see an interstitial ad in something that you're that you're theoretically getting off the internet, right? Well, it, it stopped. Well, it stopped. It went to the ad, and then it then it buffered a little bit, and then it went back to the Simpsons. I thought we lost our place altogether. I'm like, is this the best they could do? They couldn't like do a little thing at the bottom, a little banner at the bottom, like even keeping the Simpsons running. Like, why do you have to just stop? Well, some weird you know place? why. I Anyways. mean, technically, you know why. Know. You know why. I mean, they have to I they know. have to pull a file and start but streaming that file, and they have to measure it, of course, and they have to measure that you watch the whole damn thing. And because if you don't watch the whole damn thing or try and skip over it, then you're not. Then you are going to lose your place. 
but I don't have to like it. <laughs> and that's, that's a really interesting that's a really interesting thing that isn't given a lot of press these days is this idea of when you watch those interstitial ads on uh, YouTube, which is now experimenting with, I've seen a few on YouTube, on Hulu, um, and some of the other live streaming platforms, you can't roll past it. You can nope. fast forward and rewind anything. your show, but you can't fast forward through the ads like you can on streaming, you know, like a, like your direct TV or your cable box. It's a, it's a, you know, your DVR basically. It's a, it's a really interesting sort of challenge. Well, you the- have to watch the whole darn thing. But that's the advantage. You just mentioned it. That's one of the advantages that brands have because you don't have to throw out an ad. Right. Exactly. It's not ad-supported content. Yep. Just make it amazingly relevant and impactful content, and that will sell itself. Yeah. So that's the opportunity. Absolutely. And thus, to the next story. I love that. I love that. I love that side story, though. By the way, I'm a big I'm a big Finn Simpsons fan as well. So by the way, we did watch that episode in its entirety. There it is. I just wanted oh, to see. Just wanted uh, to drinking let you game. Know. There it is. Take a shot, folks. <laughs> Moving on to the next story. This one comes to us from a couple of places that we're going to link to in the show notes. Of course, the 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 story that we'll link to is from thenextweb.com, um, and then of course we'll link to the press release itself. Introducing dun 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 dun, dun Facebook Live. Facebook announced its own live video streaming service this last week and but unlike periscope or meerkat um those new uh sort of streaming live video platforms one of course owned by twitter only celebrities can use this one uh it is restricted to people with verified pages um who can use the exclusive mentions app uh, making live video a gated community feature led to much debate, of course, uh, with some saying that it was a way of controlling quality and cutting down on the messy, low-value streams of your Uncle Bob talking about his dog, <laughs> which, by the way, if you've spent any time on Periscope, which I have of late because I've been experimenting a little with it myself, um, <laughs> it's uh, it's only one step up from, like, uh, 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 chat roulette in terms of what you're going to get in any cl- given click. So, chat roulette. Um, That's a good one. You know, so there are plenty of, you know, speaking of untoward appendages that you might be seeming. But anyway, what do you think, Joe? Is this is this Facebook trying to compete with Periscope or is this an entirely different thing altogether? Uh, well, first of all, I actually like that they just went to celebrities because it's exactly what LinkedIn did with their influencer program. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to beta test it on these people, see how it goes. Uh, people that already have audiences and people that will actually attract an audience, which they've already been able to do. I saw the Lindsey Vaughn one and uh, the Ricky Gervais one, which was kind of disturbing as he was taking a bath. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. But well, and these but yeah, don't so, disappear either, is my understanding, right? Like, oh yes, they don't unless you like the pair. Unlike the Periscope it, ones, yeah. You could set it to disappear, okay, if you want yeah. to, uh, or you can keep it on there forever. So I and we talked about this. I think it was last week or the week before. Yeah. This is just get ready for a series of additional moves that Facebook will make because they are going to completely unseat YouTube uh, when it comes to who's going to be like celebrity video producers. It's going to happen on Facebook. It's not going to happen on YouTube. I really do believe that now. And I don't know if it's going to happen on Messenger or if it's going to happen on this because who knows? I mean, look what happened with Google Plus and how many you know, missteps they took and it just didn't seem to work. Now, Facebook may say, oh, this is the mention. So it's going to go on this place or it's going to go here. Once they can show that this thing is going to work and then they figure out whatever the monetization is going to be or whatever the other benefits are, 
watch out. I can absolutely see people jumping ship and saying, okay, well, I'm not going to have it on this platform anymore. I'm going to have it on this platform. They could use both. You could keep it on both because YouTube is just a behemoth. But uh, I, if there's anyone that's going to tackle that, I think it's going to be Facebook. I, I think so. you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, if, if I have to comment on the, the strategy here, I would totally agree with you that this was the right way to do it. I mean, obviously, a startup like Periscope or Meerkat can't do that because their whole their whole, you know, reason for being is because they're trying to get the entire community in the world to do this. And so they, you know, they, as a startup company, they, they, they need to go wide with it immediately and sort of start it up. Um, whereas Facebook already having an audience, already having a platform doesn't need to do that and can take a more considered and strategic approach to this, making it more, you know, making it a more, uh, a, a, a higher quality theoretically thing. Now, We'll see how it gets executed to your point, you know, with all these celebrities, right? If there's anything interesting there other than sort of watching Ricky Gervais take a bath, which, you know, quite frankly, I mean, he's a funny guy, but watching him take a bath is not necessarily something that's terribly but compelling. You know what? <laughs> what's interesting in this, this is just my personal take, it may be completely wrong, but this battle now, which I think is happening between Facebook and YouTube, I think is going to. Twitter Periscope is going to get brushed aside in this whole thing unless they move fast. Because initially, and I think this was one of the articles we covered where Jason Calacanis was talking about how Twitter has the opportunity with its purchase of per- or with its launch of Periscope that did they they purchase Periscope? Yeah, didn't Twitter. They? Yeah, Twitter now owns yeah, Periscope. Twitter per- so, yeah. so so they purchased Periscope. They had the opportunity because most celebrities who had an audience. They had most of their connections on Twitter. Correct. Well, now, if this works for Facebook and you see more action on Facebook, you could you could see that move. And they could say, well, okay, if I'm going to do a video, if I'm really going to want to talk with my audience, I'm going to use Facebook to do that versus a Twitter versus a YouTube, whatever. So I, and none of this means anything at this point. It's just something that keeps us busy and keeps us talking on this show. Well, so we'll, exactly we'll, see right. what ha- yeah, exactly we'll see what happens. Well, and, you know, and so here's the question, right? Is this do they roll this out to brands next, you know, basically those that have brand pages in an effort to keep those brands happy with their brand, you know, give them a new capability to do something on those Facebook pages to, that actually, you know. God, I hope not. I hope not either. But, but you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's a really interesting thing because, you know, ultimately this, if you sort of take this to its logical end and you look at, you know, okay, well, we're going to roll this out to now lots and lots of, basically anybody's, any celebrity that has a verified uh, account with Facebook can now do this live video and a lot of celebrities take it up and they take it sort of one concentric circle out from that, which is of course all the YouTube people then sort of really going into the thing to your point and sort of, but now where do you draw the line, right? Do you, where, you know, do you draw the line at who's got a bigger Facebook following? Do you sort of go out selectively? How, you know, at some point they have to make it widely, at least quote unquote, semi widely available. And now all of a sudden it really you, – you're going to come back to that same question, which, you know, to your point, it just gives us more fodder to talk about, which is organic reach, right? How, how many live videos am I going to start seeing in my stream? Because the whole point of a live video is, is that I've got to be able to know about it when it's happening. And so as more things become time-sensitive – 
like live video, then all of a sudden my Facebook feed crowds and do they prioritize it? And ah, it becomes a big, yeah. it becomes a very interesting challenge for them, I think. And well, I, I think as it expands outside of celebrities, which it absolutely will at some point, I think you that think, the key right? Is, it doesn't have to. They don't have, I mean, they could just no, make this a true. celebrity thing. That's true. But I, I think, it, I absolutely think it will. I think the the concern is is that if this is going to work for brands or actually anybody, it has to be something consistent. I think it has to be a show at a certain time. I think that's the best way to do it, whereas that's been the successful model for publishing for hundreds of years, for YouTube, for anything else, is that consistency instead of just saying, hey, I'm going to do this. I think it's working right now on Facebook because Lindsey Vaughn could say, hey, I'm going to try this out. This is my first one, and I'm going to ski. Watch right. me ski. I think it works because it's kind of an, it's new, it's novel. Yeah, I mean, other I than events, if, I'm really I'm kind of struggling with the whole use case for live video, the Periscope, Meerkat, now Facebook. I'm I'm struggling for for the marketing thing. Other than events, right? You know, like I just got back from Sydney and Singapore, where I was a keynote for one of Adobe's symposium there, both in, in both cities, and there were people in the front row of my presentation that were doing Periscope and me are basically doing my my presentation live for their audiences. And I walked up to them, a couple of them, and I said, hey, listen, how many were actually watching? It's like, oh, six, you know, or, oh, 11, yeah. you know, and it's like, and they, so, so Adobe was also live streaming it. And I said, well, why weren't you using Periscope? And they were like, oh, no, 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 no. We have our own platform for this. We have, we want to get the name and email, you know, they have a, they have a whole thing, right? They want to get. Yeah data around this thing and doing it through Periscope or Meerkat or Facebook. I mean, this becomes the new version of don't build your house on rented land. Don't do your live telecast, you know, your live internet cast from a rented place, right? You know, you got to do it from your own place where you get that, you get the value of the data of who watched. So uh, anyway, it's a whole, there's a whole new, a yeah, whole new exactly. world of live it's gonna, video. It's going to get crazy. But, but, but I think that planned live can work. Yeah. No, I think it can too. I, but not like Hey, I'm The Rock, and I'm just out and about, and look at this. Right. You know, which I don't know how many times I want to see The Rock, although he's a big dude, so yeah. I'm not going to say that to his face. <laughs> yeah, he's a, very, he's a very tough man. He's a very, very tough man. All right, let's move on, shall we? Um, next story. Um, this one was one that really made me think. Um, this comes to us courtesy of Ad Age, and it's called The Uber of Agencies. Why marketers want to ride with a new kind of shop. A uh, big hat tip here, by the way, to Ali Kabao. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing your name, Ali, uh, correctly. At A-L-I-K-I-B-A-O, Ali Kabao, at Ali Kabao on Twitter, if you want to follow Ali. Um, and the article starts out by saying, the agency model of the future might just be Uber. Fascinating way to open the story. Over the last decade, the article says agencies have kept up with emerging technologies by snapping up companies with expertise in digital, social, and mobile. But Kimberly Clark, Chief Marketing Officer Clive Sirkin, has said the industry is changing too fast to keep pace by buying things. Instead, he suggests an Uber-like approach, managing the traffic without owning the ride, or in the case of agencies, owning the relationship with a client, the strategy, and data without owning the execution. Though Mr. Serkin himself, a former Leo Burnett uh, executive, said he doesn't want to tell the agency holding companies how to run their business. If he were running one, he would ask, what's the Uber type of experience for agencies? So what did you think about this, Joe? This was a, a fascinating article to me, given what I've been experiencing with agencies and technology companies and sort of – and we've talked about this before. But did you have any particular take on this? Well, it's – 
It's deep. <laughs> yeah. Deep thoughts with Jack Candy. Deep thoughts with Jack Candy. I was, yeah. I'm I okay, mean, was, uh, you're okay, and Uber is okay. Well, the... So I want a little bit of clarification. Sure. I talked to you about this before. When when we're talking about Uber for agencies here, we're talking about just a disruptive type of model. What what what's what does that mean? I think exactly? what, so. Here's what I'm. Here's my takeaway. Right. Here, so when you look at the trend, and they actually mention a study here that was done. Um, I couldn't find the actual study itself, but they talked about a study that says 59% of marketers. Um, uh, that have moved in the past year to consolidate agencies, basically to move from this, you know, because what's happened over the last, you know, call it 15 years, right, really since digital has gotten its legs underneath it, is that the agency world, just like the marketing world and just like the channel world like we talked about at the beginning of the show, that's all fragmented as well, right? So, you know, every big enterprise now, every big mid-sized company has multiple agency relationships. You know, there's a direct agency, there's an email agency, there's a web agency, there's a brand agency, there's the SEO agency, there's the content marketing agency, there's all these agencies that sort of handle ever smaller pieces, the strata of the overall marketing strategy. And they even talk about this in this article, is that the old days of one agency that sort of handled everything has is long gone. And the pendulum seems to be swinging back a little bit because, and again, coming back to this study, 63% of marketers expect that trend to continue in the coming years. And I, I, I would agree with that. It's certainly my anecdotal evidence that I see is that the number of companies that are looking to simplify, yep. reduce the number of agencies, quite frankly, reduce the number of technology companies and consultants and all of that that they're dealing with on any given basis – is definitely rising. And those that are actually bringing in those creative services, content in many cases, but creative services and agency-like services in-house is also increasing. Um, you know, we, we've mentioned this before on the show, but, you know, you look at what Capital One did with Adaptive Path, and you know, that's an agency, a UX digital app-creating agency, and they bought the agency, right? And so I think what this is really speaking to from the Uber sort of look at this is – is there a model for agencies where agencies can own the strategy um, and the, the 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 media strategy, certainly the distribution strategy, the ultimate data uh, and the assembly and insight that comes out of that data? In other words, owning the solution as a sort of strategic partner without actually having to own the execution of that, um, which is becoming more and more commoditized. And that's a really interesting, you know, because agencies forever have operated off of this media buy, which is a very slim budget and basically provided the services that support that underneath that, right? So for 8 or 10% or 12% of your media buy, I'll provide you with all the creative services you need to execute those media buys. That's a there's a much different model that's being well, it, looked at there. It's a different model because, and this is my experience is the strategy has always been given away for free to get the execution. That's exactly right. And he's suggesting maybe the, that, that the disruptive part of that, like the Uber look at that, is the strategy that now, you know, like, and his model is, you know, Uber is this wonderful transportation company that doesn't own any cars, that doesn't actually execute on the transportation itself. Can you actually provide the network 
the insight of data, the all of the sort of heavy thinking lifting, and let others let other mechanisms sort of execute, whether it's programmatic advertising or um, you know maybe offshore, maybe, you know, so many different ideas for execution here. It's it's a fascinating. You know, but is that uh, but so. Is instead of having the agency be in charge of that strategy and may, maybe you know getting the data in, pulling some of the levers here and there, bringing in other pieces, parts, wouldn't that strategy just be better served to say that strategy is run inside the company, and then that person is working with, let's say, simplification is saying, okay, well, instead of twenty agencies, we're going to work with fourteen or eight or three. And, but that but that strategy is done in house, isn't that the better model? Or it it is missing? to me. I mean, it is it it is to me. You know, but but obviously, a lot of you know, there's a lot of value in engaging an agency to get you know, sort of that outside. You know, if, especially if you don't have it. But maybe even if you do have it, you know, I mean, look it. Without drawing too fine a point on this, this has sort of been the CMOs or the VP of marketing sort of modus operandi forever is in order to secure job security for yourself, you hire agencies to come in with the big ideas because if you don't like their big ideas, you fire them and bring in another one. They're never your big ideas because if they were your big ideas, they'd be firing you and you'd be looking for a new job. And so if you're looking for any sort of consistency as a CMO or as a VP of marketing, sort of the lead marketing dog in a, in a company, you always bring in and outsource the, you know, even if you sort of quote unquote check the box that says this is my strategy, you're bringing in those people because the creative nature of an advertising campaign or the year-long initiative that's going to look like an advertising campaign is going to be creatively based. And next year, it's going to be something different. And if the agency doesn't come with an equally or better idea than they did this year, then you're going to, you know, then you're going to replace them. You know, you're going to put the agency into review. That model itself is changing now because what you're seeing now is is that there's a lot of those agency of record deals that are just not there anymore. And CMOs and heads of marketing are now taking that on themselves and saying, listen, this is not a campaign-driven environment anymore. This is an always-on environment, and we have to be good all the time in much shorter durations. And so is it better to hire lots of little agencies who can help us execute quickly – or do we hire the giant agency that basically gives us all the cost efficiencies we want? But quite frankly, we're getting the average, you know, we're getting the average of the giant agency, right? We're not getting the best and brightest, probably. We're getting sort of the B team or in some cases the C team with an A or level, you know, person sort of heading up the account. So it's a really interesting time, I think, for agents. They even bring up sort of the, you know, the entree of publishers. You know, they, they talked about the content agencies. We talked about Truffle Pig. Um, that you know that came out of Snapchat and WPP and sort of these experiments uh-huh. that are coming out of other agencies and they bring up Vayner Media, which you know Gary Vaynerchuk and his sort of company, and it's interesting to me how many of those companies, those sort of experimental companies, are solely focused on execution right now, and you know that they're really about executing content, not necessarily coming in and setting strategy. That's a really interesting trend that I think, to your point, has to be broken. If agencies are going to break out of this, they've got to break that trend. I think this is this is what you just said is right where we're at right now. B2B, B2C, nonprofit. You've got some really amazing agencies out there that aren't necessarily involved in the overall business strategy of the organization or marketing strategy, but let's just call it business and marketing strategy. 
they're executing a lot of content. Yeah. And even even this article goes on and says, oh, this is these brands they need content quickly from all these different sources, and so these brands are grabbing content from everyone everywhere, including the agencies. All these disruptive. It's almost like disruption run amok. How much content can we blast out in all these different kinds of channels? We're going to use free content creators. We're going to use influencers. We're going to use – it's gotten so complex and, frankly, out of hand, and there's no long-term consistent strategy. I And I would just say you, – you said the word you know quickly. We've got to create content. I don't – I totally disagree with that right now. I think that y- you have – it can look like you've created it quickly, but I think you need that planning behind oh, of it. Of course, and I don't think that's happening. Well, I, wrote, I think that there's still this momentum over, and I wouldn't call it real time. Yeah. But it's like, oh, we've got to be fast. We've got to do it this. We've got to. I don't know if you have to. I think you have to find out. Well, first of all, what what the heck this is all about? Why you're doing it? What the strategy is? And then second of all, figure out, hey, where can we really be the leading expert at something? And then focus on a channel or two that you can distribute content and build an audience around, which I don't think that's happening. I think those other launches you're talking about, I think they're all they're focused on, oh, we're going to create content all over the place for these brands because brands need it that way. But I don't know if they need it. that. Way. It's, a, it, it's a great point. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you saw, I don't know if you saw I wrote a post. It was my letter for the intelligent content uh, piece that went out, not last week, but the week before. And I was basically sort of fixing myself and an answer that I often give at workshops and, and, and advisory engagements and those sorts of things. Because I used to get asked, I still get asked all the time, how much content should we be creating? And my sort of too cute answer to that was always, as much as you can be great at. And the my and and I've realized just exactly to your point that that's really not very good advice. The and the way I've sort of rephrased that now and the advice that I give now is as little as you can and still create the same impact you're trying to create. Yeah, and and that's and that's the it. that's the better way to approach this is that we don't have to fill our days with Less the creation the of content. Of yeah. We can we can leave them wanting more. That's great insight. Can I? And we'll end with this. But you and I were talking about it before. Why do most agencies measure themselves on the number of employees they have? Because it makes them sound bigger, right? And they don't want to give. And they don't actually want to give up the revenue number because if you can, if you can guess the revenue number, when you guess the revenue number and you know the number of employees, I, I can tell. I and having some agency experience, I can tell you exactly how the agency is doing profitability wise. You know, so if you tell me the number of employees and you tell me the the, the amount of revenue and, and you're truthful, I can tell you how profitable your agency is. <laughs> it's just but that it's, simple. It's well, you know, and being starting my career in a publishing agency, which is very different than a real real agency, as people would think about it. Publishing agencies means you're an agency within a publisher. You're doing right. marketing services for brands that generally advertise with your organization. They don't usually ask you for creative type stuff. So that's where we were at. We were not – I don't care what the revenue was. You're not hiring this year. That was it was always a no. I don't care if you have $10 million, $20 million, $30 million, You're going to have to work it out without hiring people. That's right. So we always got very creative. We used the staff we had, and that staff oversaw a number, vast amounts of contractors. So I remember when, at uh, when I was at Penton the one time at, for this publishing agency, we had about twenty employees, and we had about a hundred plus contractors we worked with at any one time on the different projects. Yes, because that's what we had to do. Now what we learned was. 
that's a pretty darn good model. That's, I think, the best model of all. Uh, I mean, some people might disagree with me, but we've, I think we found that it, it works very, very well depending on the type of person, type of flexibility, type of needs. Not every well, agency have, you, can do it. Yeah. But, but I don't think – I think we all – I think agencies that – and you and I have talked to <laughs> similar types of people in those roles. I've t- I just was telling you a story before about a CEO I talked to at an agency, very proud that they just added six more people. Right. And my answer was, did you, and back to them was, did you have to hire six? Right. Like, I mean, I'm all for job growth. Don't get yeah, me wrong. Right. But did you have to hire six? It, maybe, well, and it's, maybe and you it, had to hire three. Yeah. Maybe and you it's, could outsource to four other people. And this is something that, well, I mean, this is something that the, you know, speaking of sort of the traditional sort of ad agencies have done forever and ever, which is they swell, you know, when they get, you know, they'll land a big account. And they will swell in employee size to handle that big account. And if that account goes away, they then lay off a bunch of those people as well. So there's some fluctuation there. And there's some freelancers going, this is really when we start talking about the, the mid-sized agencies that are, that are hiring people. You know, and, you know, look, a, a very, my, you know, a mentor and a, you know, he was one of the venture capital people that put money into the company that I used to work for. He said to me, the only expensive thing you'll ever do is hire somebody. And that's, it's, it's true. It's, 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 it's really, really the most true. important decisions you make or don't make yep. around hiring people. That is exactly so right. It's, um, I just don't want that to be it. And well, actually the same thing with brands. When, when a brand is creating an internal content group of some kind, I think that you have the person that is overseeing the strategy. That person should be an employee. I think from that point on, you need to ask yourself whether you should be doing that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just think it's about. I, I think today, especially with the amount of talent out there, that that they don't mind working on a ten ninety nine. They love flexible time. There's not necessarily an office environment. Doesn't have to be. Um, so I, I just the question needs to be asked. Yep. Well, speaking of hiring and speaking of that sort of thing, we get to eat lunch because we have a wonderful, wonderful sponsor that has sponsored this show. And as everyone knows, Robert and I love to eat lunch. We do. We love it. (laughs) This old marketing this week, episode 91, is sponsored by the wonderful folks at Emma. Email marketing for the modern brand. Emma. Is a provider of best-in-class software and services that help organizations of all sizes get more from their email marketing. In Emma's new Modern Marketers Field Guide, we were talking about that last week, wasn't it? Where we're saying it's modern marketing. Modern marketing. It's modern marketing. Because nobody wants outdated marketing. No. We don't want the outdated marketers. You don't want guide. that I lightly want the, burnished antique marketing. You want? That, I know. That, I want the modern the patina. Mar- Give me marketing something. with a patina to it. Robert, I need something more modern. <laughs> I need a modern. You'll marketing. learn. <laughs> you'll learn now. In the modern marketing marketers field guide, you'll learn how to identify and use the right marketing tools to craft emails that truly stand out in the inbox. We all need that, and create a personal experience. Experience, Robert's Woo-hoo. favorite word these days, for every subscriber. I like that word, too. Yeah. Download the guide now at bit.ly slash myemma-field-guide. That's bit.ly, bit.ly, slash myemma-field-guide. Awesome Download piece. it today. If you have not awesome downloaded piece. it, shame on you. You have to go do that now. And thanks to the wonderful folks at Emma for continuing to support 
this old marketing. Absolutely right. Thank you so much to the folks at Emma there. And every time I see the My Emma logo, I just hear like steel guitars and that Nashville sound. So it's, it's, uh, I love that about it too. <laughs> I know. Got that thing. Got that thing. Got that thing. Got that thing. All right, folks, it is your favorite segment of the show. It's our rants and rave section where Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave on something that, you know, makes us want to say, I'll go hit some guests. Or makes us feel like John Stewart when his Mets win a game, which is very rarely, actually. Um, more frequently these days, I guess, but, but uh, usually pretty infrequent. Um, and I guess, uh, let's see, you're going f- – no, I'm going first because I have you're this old marketing this week. That's right. Absolutely. I have a rave this week. Um, and it is – so um, as you know, Joe, but maybe many people out there, one of my guilty pleasures – is to uh, surf Reddit. I am a big Reddit uh, redditor, uh, as they would say. I'm a lurker for sure. I am not one that gives out the sweet, sweet karma, um, and um, I am definitely a lurker. But I do really, really like it. And when I, when content finds me, um, content marketing specifically organically when I'm not out there looking for it because I am sort of, you know, as cynical as it gets when it looks when I look at marketing and content marketing and all that stuff. But when it finds me and it surprises me, it just it delights me. It absolutely does. I totally pay attention. And there's this wonderful example that happened to me this week and so I just have to rave about it because I didn't even know it existed and it found me. Um, because I'm surfing Reddit and I go and look at this video. There's a video that says this guy is going to talk all about penmanship, the lost art of penmanship. And he's one of only 11 master penmans in the world. I didn't even know there was such a thing called a master penman, but there is. And he's the youngest one ever by like 30 years. Um, and he's a 30-year-old guy and he's one of only 11 master penmans. It's this video about him being a master penman and what it takes. And it's actually fascinating. It shows him drawing and making illustrations, talking with other master penmen and how he sort of learned how to write letters. And, and, it's, and it's beautiful. It's just a wonderfully put together video. In the middle of it, there's a shot of him talking with one of the master penmans and it cuts to their beers and it's Coors beer. And, and you know, of course, being a marketing guy and salty and all of that, I went, uh, that felt weird. And then at the end, the very end, I didn't know about it at the the very end, it says this video, this series of videos, this documentary series was brought to you by um, Coors Beer, Miller Coors Beer, and their banquet brand of, of beers. And so I was like, okay, now I got to go find this out. So I go find, and on Adweek, we'll put the link in the show notes, there's an article about it. There's an article about how this digital media agency, speaking of agencies, in partnership with uh, Miller Coors, the agency's Woven Digital, um, had created this series of videos all about sort of bringing the artisanal back to the modern. And they've got a series of five videos that are out there. One of them is on this penman. This is episode four, by the way. So I'm catching it in the middle. There's another one on this guy who makes sort of classic surfboards, um, sort of the old way that they were done, you know, years and years ago. There's other, there's, you know, three other episodes that talk about other things about bringing sort of the classic design classic artisanal sort of approach to these products. And I ended up watching all five and just was, I just loved them. I mean, they're just great content, just wonderful, wonderful content. And so I go back to the article, which is on Adweek and talking about it. And so their original goal for these videos was to get 750,000 views for the five videos in total. 
but already three episodes in, which is when they wrote the article, they'd already gotten two, almost three million views um, from the Facebook pages on their, on their course. They distributed it and this Uproxx sort of platform uh, for, for other articles. And the way that the, um, the guy at the agency said in partnership with us is he said, there's a huge void in the marketplace right now of high-end quality content, digitally focused, focused for, and they were really trying to reach millennials um, in a really interesting way, which is why they tried to, uh, decided to do this. Um, and so, you know, if you're interested in sort of that kind of thing, they're great, fun, seven-minute videos, um, but just a wonderful example of content marketing. And I just thought it was the reason I'm raving about it is because when it, fi- when it finds me and I'm surprised, it's like sort of a, it's, it's sort of a double delight for me. So that's my rave for this week. But it sounds like though outside of views and impressions, they're not looking to do this long term, build an I audience. I hope so. I hope like this that. is something that they're gonna try to do. It doesn't seem do. like yeah, it. I mean they're not building toward anything, right? And so, you know, but I don't have a lot of insight into the actual so I'm hoping it's more than just a campaign, but yeah. for now I like it. Yeah. I guess I'd love to I'd love to have somebody say, Yes, right now we're we're looking at these primary metrics of views, but our ultimate goal is to build a platform and a long-term audience. Sure. I'd just let yeah. go giddy yeah. if somebody said, exactly. <laughs> started exactly. talking like exactly. that. Which probably It's a start. Happen. It's a step in the right direction, Joe. It's a step. Come on. <laughs> you know what? We need giant leaps at this point. Yes, we do. Good point. Excellent. Excellent I'm point. Tired of steps. Excellent you and I point. have been taking lots of steps. Yes, but you're and, in a, and, and you're in a cranky in mood because you have a rant. Into, well, actually into my rant. So this is – I got this. This is from uh, Marketing Magazine Australia, and I got this uh, in the inbox or something came to me mid, middle of a uh, week last week or something. It was called Why No One Cares About Your Content. And I said, that sounds like an article for me. That I sounds like we should be reading out. that. So I, uh, you know, this is from Ryan Griffin. Uh, he works at Switched On Media. Folks at Switched On are great. Uh, I've known them for a while uh, here and there and their work. They've done really good work. But so Ryan writes this article. And I'm just going just gonna to share parts of this with you. Talks about, Ryan leads off and says, talks about how the phrase content marketing has sprung into the vocabulary of a few keynote speakers within the past 18 months. Oh, dear. First of all, I'm saying, 18 months? Really? Okay. That's all right. Good. The next one, essentially a pyramid scheme. Oh, no. Oh, God. He's already lost it. Content marketing works by swindling marketers into its promises of quick riches and business outcomes by updating the arrangement of words across their website. Of course, now I'm like, come on. WTF, so, man. Yeah, so I have to go in, and it's not a horrible article by any means. I did comment on it, and I'll share with you the comments in a second. But the, the, the issue is I'm just – the premise, of course, is all wrong because anybody that's out there – we have to stop this, and I think Ryan, who wrote this, has to stop it, and we have to stop it, where we talk about content marketing being anything quick. Like anybody that says you can get – you can see results right away. Right. All, you all you should always have your right you know what detector that's up, right and you should know right away that that's that's a, that's an issue so basically Ryan goes through this whole article by saying all these people that are these quote unquote content marketing people are <laughs> no. oh, are no. you know are, are basically uh, leading you astray and cr- telling you to create engaging content that will inspire readers driving metrics such as reach and likes right now here's the issue you I mean 
Right. Well, if you're going to position like real, it that way, of course, it's like it's like you know, it, it's a, it's like saying you shouldn't buy cars because when you drive cars, you hit people and kill them. It's like okay, that, that's right, exactly put it that way. Well, then of course we shouldn't buy cars. Well, that's the problem I had with this because if you really and this is the thing we just, you know we just brought this up before. If you really understand the practice, the art and science of content marketing, you would know that's not true. Right. So my point here with Ryan, Ryan, God love you, man. I, I and I, I just did a little background check on Ryan. Ryan just got his MBA. He hasn't been working in the industry very long, which is fine. Um, I'm assuming. I mean, I don't know how long he's been doing what he's been doing. Ryan, we'll do but, a two by two together, buddy. But but yeah, but but I'm just saying. I'm just saying, Ryan, man, there are a lot of really good people out there that are trying to fight this battle. And it, just a little side note, I was having an email conversation with a very well-respected um, CEO of a content marketing agency, and they sent me an email that basically said, you know, we have to get off of this whole content marketing thing because we're all marketers. We should all be using content, and maybe we should stop using content marketing. And I sent a note to him, and I said, I said, basically, I, the first part was boo. That's how I started it. Boo, don't be, you know, like, it's good for the industry that we're all talking the same language. And he came back to me and he said, look, there's a lot of people, SEO folks mostly, and this is his words, that said, hey, uh, it, they're really tearing content marketing down. They're all saying they're content marketing people. And Joe, it's your responsibility to stand up and say, this is not what content marketing is. And I'm saying, hey, we're screaming it from every platform we have telling people what it is and what it isn't. So I'm coming back to this article now. I think it's our responsibility to say, look, that's not what content marketing is. And I'll end with this. And so people don't know, people know that I actually comment on this stuff. So I was the first one to comment on. There's like 28 comments now. And some of it's sort of humorous if you wanted to go through it. And I'll put it in the show notes, of course. And I start out and I'm very nice. I'm not going to tear anything down. I just said, you know, fun read for the morning. Um, I said, actually, what we want with our content is to build an audience. That is the holy grail. Build an audience that knows, likes, and trusts us first. Then they'll buy from us. Most brands, most brands go uh, for the web conversion before a relationship is built. Those brands usually fail. Focus on subscribers, not leads. So I'm just... Yeah, very simply right. making right. my case. Right. Plus, you got other things to do, so it's a short comment. I just wanted to put, yeah, I just want to let him, let him know that I read it, uh, and then I come back, and then he comes back to me. You know, thanks for the comments, Joe. Enjoying dis- the discussion, blah blah blah. Uh, ideals around building an audience that knows, likes, and trusts you through content marketing is a great vision to have, but they don't make a business. And then, of course, I'm like, well, <laughs> would, you, like, would you uh, like to see my books? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. And so basically I said, I said, hi, Ryan. Actually, it does work that way. Yeah. My latest book, Content Inc., interviews dozens and dozens of businesses that built an audience first and then monetized the audience. I said, the problem with big companies in this model is that they are too impatient. So anyways, that's how I left it. It was just a fun Sigh. back and forth. I'm glad I didn't uh, get involved in that one. Oh, uh, yeah. It's, it's a good thing you didn't get involved in and, and and actually, some of the points of the article are actually fine, but I think that if you're going to talk about content for marketers or content marketing in any way, you better darn know the history of it. 
and well, what's the, going on I mean, and what the purpose is. And that's the biggest problem I have because a lot of these articles that are coming out, as, as wonderful as you and I love it right now because business is good, people are talking about it, brands are on board, there's so many un, quote unquote thought leaders out there that don't know what this is. And that's starting right. to. It's starting to bother me a little bit, yeah. to be honest. No, it's a it's so. a great point. I mean, it's that you know, it's a classic. You know, redefine the thing the way that optimally works for your argument, and then make the argument right. And it's like, no, you don't get to redefine the the, the what content marketing is and the and and the history behind it, and then make the you know because you quite frankly, then your argument falls apart. Um, and so anyway, I don't want to get off on you. I don't want to, I don't want to rant on your rant, but, but, but yeah, that's so I was good. Say, yeah. No, we'll end it. Yeah. We'll end it like this. Ryan, the story of content documentary will be out. We're premiering in a content marketing world on September 8th. If you can't be there for that, it will be available. Story of Check it out. I think the historical perspective of this, it's 45 minutes and you, you've watched it. I, it's beautiful. It's fantastic. It's really great. And it is, I think it's going to make a huge impact on the industry. And I think the people that don't really know what content marketing is and what the purpose is and the history, I think is so important to this thing. And you and I were just talking about, it, and those kind of lead into your, this old yeah. marketing, how old this is. And Absolutely. we really believe that the first marketing, you said this, not me, first marketing was probably content marketing yep. and not the marketing we think of today. So. Yeah, well, so stay tuned for that because I'm working on a larger piece um, around that. So, um, so, th- so na- our next segment um, and and last segment of the show is, of course, the namesake for the show, which is, of course, this old marketing. And and I have a really really fun one this week um, that comes out of the. So, as many of you who listen to the show regularly know, I have been spending my my summer, my spring, really buried in textbooks around the idea of the origins of marketing and specifically the origins of marketing performance. And it's really sort of working toward my performance and and measurement uh, track um, that is going to be at Content Marketing World in September. And during that research, um, I have run across this guy, Arch Shaw. And he is totally worth researching if you're interested in this sort of origins of marketing. So going back to the very, very origins of marketing, and, and not a lot of people know, sort of going back to, you know, the MBA thing and all that, the marketing is a relatively modern term, um, really only having its usage for the last hundred or so years, maybe 150 years. But um, going back to one of the earliest mentions of marketing as a process, as a process in business, this guy Arch Shaw is one of the scholars in that space. So Arch Shaw was a businessman, as it turns out, and he had an office supply company and furniture company um, in Chicago. And as owner of this office supply and furniture company, he basically sold businesses, um, office supplies, office furniture, um, and some office services. So he's really marketing. He's a B2B marketer, marketing and, and, and selling his stuff to businesses. He went on, by the way, just as a quick side note here, he was uh, a publisher as well. He was the first... Uh, editor of a very, very new publication called the Harvard Business Review because Harvard Business, um, Harvard started up their business school and um, he was an early professor there in the practice of marketing. They didn't call it marketing then. They called it business strategy and some other things. Um, he was one of the first professors there and then also became the editor, the very first editor of the Harvard Business Review. 
he became that because one of his expertise that he had was in publishing a magazine. He really loved publishing. And he had created a magazine for the purpose of marketing his business, his office supply and furniture company. And he had created two magazines ultimately, but it, it spun out of one that he created called System, the Magazine of Business. And you can look these up if you want, System, the Magazine of Business. Um, and it was really about the idea of showing off and illustrating the best practices in business, right? Who should be managing this kind of department? How should marketing work? How should you have supplies in your business? How should you manage inventory? All of these sort of best practices and also the news of the day, the news of big business of the day. So it was sort of a combo magazine. Well, it became so popular, this magazine, as sort of a company-provided magazine that helped him establish the brand of his company and sort of widely spread throughout the Chicago area, that he actually split the magazine into two. He created a magazine called System, which was all about office supplies and inventory and the supplies of business and furniture and the best practices of deploying that in your business. And then another one called The Magazine of Business, which he talked about all the news that was going on in big business. This magazine, both of them were very successful for him as content marketing platforms for him to further the furniture business and become wildly successful with the furniture business itself. Interestingly enough, when he retired, he then sold the business, this the, the, the magazine business, which he was calling at that point the, the magazine of business, to a company called McGraw-Hill, which you might have heard of. And McGraw-Hill then changed the name of the magazine, called, calling it The Business Week. And they started publishing this magazine as The Business Week. And then all of a sudden, they then decided that they were going to rebrand it because it was being so successful, this magazine and the content was so successful in what Art Shaw had been able to create that they decided to rebrand it and it became a little-known magazine called Business Week, which would then operate for the next, you know, 100 years um, and, uh, and ultimately be bought by Bloomberg and still operates today uh, online. It's just a wonderful example of this old marketing and, and sort of how the content evolved. That is fascinating. Love that story. That is a good that where did you unearth that one? Oh, I've been trust me, my, my desk right now looks a little bit like Indiana Jones uncovering the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> it's it's That's yeah, great. I got a lot of paper on my desk right now. Oh, so uh, so what's what's your week look like? Uh, my week is, is is still heads down in my presentation for Content Marketing World, still working on that. I have a couple of little client engagements to do here locally, going to go teach a class and, and all of that. But I'm really heads down for getting ready for September. I'm excited. And I might okay. watch a little, you know, preseason football, too. That's so right. That's, that's Got- coming up, and I'm excited about that. Got football starting. Uh, just a little side note for those people that are planning to go to Content Marketing World. Uh, there's very few hotel rooms in Cleveland left. Get your, so get your tickets. If you, get your tickets. Register and get a hotel. Well, we'll find a spot for you, but please do it soon. And, of course, uh, thank you for recording this on Sunday. I don't know if everyone knows this, but tomorrow is the ninth annual CMI Golf for Autism. Uh, yeah, we've been able Great to event. raise – well over $100,000 over the past uh, eight years to uh, to very specifically help those children who need uh, speech therapy and to get the uh, the therapy and the equipment they need. And, of course, uh, a lot of people also may not know that the Orange Effect Foundation was has been started. That's the beneficiary of the CMI Golf for Autism. If you want more information about what we do there, go to theorangeeffect.org, and you can find out all about it, but it's one of our passion areas. And uh, so that's what I'll be doing tomorrow. So pray for pray for no rain. 
Praying for no rain. And uh, and we'll go from there. Absolutely. All right, folks. That is it for Joe Polizzi. This is Robert Rose signing off. And, you know, hashtag us up, man. We love those hashtags. Give us the hashtag. Oh, let me think of something cute here. No, just give us the hashtag this old marketing and, you know, follow us. Um, and, you know, if you got a question, send an email. This old marketing at contentinstitute.com. We love the story ideas. We love the ideas for this old marketing. We love you. And if you like this episode, number 91, we do hope you're going to consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher.com if you haven't done all, uh, so already. All the links we talk about are going to be in the show notes, of course, embedded into the show as we now do so faithfully, but also coming out on Saturdays in the blog post at thisoldmarketing.com. Remember, folks, it is your story to tell. Tell it well. We'll see you next week on This Old Marketing. is part of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.